I think a lot of people aren't engaging with God the way he would want. In fact, I think a lot of us are spending a lot of our time coasting through life rather than living with a a compelling sense of vision. They say that less than 15% of people even have goals. And even if you have goals in in your professional life, how many of us are coasting in our marriages? Do we have goals about how to become the spouse God wants us to be? How many of us have goals about becoming the the parent we want to be, the kind of dad we want to become? Or are we just sort of coasting through surviving? Think about uh, churches. I mean, every church that ever started, there was a group of people with a compelling sense of vision to love Jesus, to talk about the Bible, to help their friends be introduced to the Bible. And slowly over time, when that compelling sense of vision is gone, they start to coast. And what happens when they coast? Well, that slowly... No one's been baptized in 10 years. No one new has come in five years. Nobody who's wrestling with faith for the first time has come in many, many years. And so that place, which was once a compelling vision, becomes a churchy place for churchy people doing churchy things. And eventually, it becomes a crabby place for crabby people who are arguing about what pew they sit in and what color the carpet it is. Because they don't have anything compelling to talk about. The same thing's true with retirement. I mean, many of us dream about a retirement. We've planned for retirement. But we get to retirement, instead of using that extra time and energy we have to do something compelling. Wow, now I've got time. What does God want me to do? Something significant. And I want to refire, not retire. Here's how you know if you're coasting. Every day at lunch, your discussion is what you're going to have for dinner. Right? So that, that's when you know you're coasting. There's nothing compelling driving you. Or think about your spiritual life. Can you think of a time that you were really close with God? Really intimate with God? You felt his Holy Spirit tapping you on the shoulder to start a spiritual conversation with somebody maybe? To, to lead you into a leading from him to do something you might otherwise do? When's the last time you really felt the Holy Spirit convicting you of something you need to really change or apologize for? When's the last time God told you to dig down deep and give to something because he prompted you to do it? Or to, to, to go and reconcile with somebody it was hard to reconcile with? Are you living with a compelling sense of vision and significance? Or are you just coasting? I had a, a track coach who would always come up to me and say, Chad, I know you're winning first place and second place and triple jump and long jump, but I don't see you working that hard out there for the, for your, for the warm-ups. I'm like, I'm not. He says, Chad, here's the thing. When you're coasting... You're always going downhill. If you're coasting, you're probably going down here spiritually. Probably going downhill in not being part of everything God would have for you as a person, as a friend, as a leader, as a spouse, as a parent, as a child. And Jesus is amazing in this passage. He lives with a compelling sense a vision. And here, right in the middle of the passage, and we'll back up to it, we're going to find out he is not coasting, he's not complacent, he is compelled. He says, therefore, we'll get to therefore in a second, I must, I'm just compelled to journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. So he's got this must compel to get to Jerusalem because he's a prophet and he knows he has to die there. Huh. He's compelled to die for something. 
Now this phrase, uh, today, tomorrow, and the day following, seems to be a Hebrew idiom because it's going to be long. It's like 10 chapters before he gets to the cross. So it seems to be a phrase in, in the Jewish culture that meant, I need to stay on track to what God has for me. The clock is ticking. I know what God wants me to do. I know where I eventually need to end up. And I've got something compelling me that's worth dying for, and that's where I'm headed. So we're going to wrestle with what those truths are and what made Jesus so compelled, and based on what he's compelled by, what it can also compel us by, that we can have a motivation for living and even a motivation for dying. So two compelling truths. The first one is that we are compelled as followers of Jesus to sacrifice because he sacrificed for us. And today we're going to look at just what it meant for him to be compelled to sacrifice for us. Look what it says in verse 13, chapter 13, uh, verse 31. On that very day, Pharisees came, saying to him, Get out! Depart from here! Herod wants to kill you! And there's two views here. One view is that Pharisees aren't all bad. Like Pharisees are always a bad guy, right? God's saying, Woe unto you! Whitewashed tombs! Dead men's bones! One view here, though, is we're not going to take Marxist thinking that you know, everybody gets grouped into one group. That there were Pharisees who were good guys trying to save Jesus. Not all Pharisees are the same. Not all human beings are the same. Let's look at people's individuals. I take that view. That these are actual Pharisees that began to believe in Jesus, wanted to protect Jesus. Many Pharisees followed Jesus in his teaching. Jesus grew up in a Pharisee tradition, much more than a Sadducee tradition, who didn't believe in resurrection, took a squishy view to the Bible. The Pharisees took the Bible very seriously, thought it was from God, and they believed in the resurrection. So Jesus was much more of a Pharisee than he was a Sadducee. And this group of Pharisees seems to be warning Jesus. Hey, Herod's trying to kill you. The equivalent today would be like the mayor or the governor. It's kind of the size territory that Herod had. And he, the governor, the mayor, was out to kill Jesus. Now, the other view, more cynical view, is no, no, they're not trying to save Jesus. Jesus has been taking their authority for the last couple chapters. He's been making fun of them for the last couple chapters. He's been judging them the last couple chapters. They're trying to find a reason to get rid of him. Hey, uh, Jesus, yeah, 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 the Herod's trying to kill you. Yeah, yeah, why don't you leave? Get away from me, boy, you bother me. Oh, yes, my little chickadee. So it could be they're just trying to get rid of him. But whatever it is, they say, you've got to know Herod's trying to kill you. You've got to get out of here to keep yourself safe. And Jesus, knowing that where he's going is not going to keep himself safe, goes anyway. Jesus goes to a place that he knows will reject him. He's going to a place he knows will ultimately kill him. And he's compelled that that is what God has called him to do. That kind of compelling vision we're dying for is something rarely seen. Maybe been watching the news this week about John. John's this 26-year-old who decided to go over to India, and the Indian government's got this island of 150 natives that are disconnected from the rest of the world. And because of that, in order to protect them, outsiders aren't even allowed on the island because we might bring diseases that would kill off the whole population. But this 26-year-old was compelled by God, at least he felt that way, to go to this little island to tell them about Jesus. It's dangerous, it's difficult. We have a copy of his journal, because he made it one time, and he came back a few days later, and he journaled what happened on the first time. He shows up, he says, I'm John, I love you, and Jesus loves you, here's some fish. First bullet or arrow got caught by his waterproof Bible. He came back the next day after writing in a journal, God, I don't want to die, but these people are never going to hear about Jesus, unless I go. This may be the last sunset I ever see. 
He wrote a note to his mom and dad and said, if they kill me, I want you to forgive them. I want to live, but I want them to live in eternity with God. He returns the next day. (laughs) He's killed instantly by the natives. And from a distance, some fishermen saw them bury his body in the sand, and they're still trying to recover the body. How about you? I have lots of emotions. My first instinct is, what an idiot. There's a good reason why you don't go to the aborigines and get shot. The other sense is, man, I think about Nate Saint and others who risked their life, and it was those very people who ended up bringing a whole generation and generations to Christ. What kind of faith is that? What does he know that I don't? I'm reading another article, a biography right now, about Hudson Taylor for a series we're doing about a year from now. And Hudson Taylor is the one who opened up China to Western influence in Christianity a hundred years before Richard Nixon. He was not a Christian. His mother prayed and prayed. She said, God, I am not going to stop praying until you bring my son to Christ. He had a lot, a lot of doubts at age 17. And one night God said, your prayer is answered. And at the same time, Hudson had been reading this track and he began to realize that Christianity is not about being serious. He didn't like all the serious Christians. It was about God making you pleasing to him. And so he becomes a Christian, Hudson Taylor does, realizes what God had done to sacrifice for him. And he's praying one night. He says, God, I want a compelling vision for my life. I want my life to be significant. You've made me pleasing to you. I want to live a life pleasing to you. I will do anything and I will go anywhere. Careful that prayer. And he said he he felt and heard the Holy Spirit's leading saying, your conditions are accepted. I want you to go to China. Amazing journey he went through. He could have been a a doctor. He was a a physician's assistant. He gave up that career. He used those skills and went and became somebody who brought Christianity to the entire country of China for like nine trips he took. Amazing. What would compel people to do that? Even if it looks crazy. Well, they want to sacrifice for Jesus because Jesus sacrificed For him, he gave his life. He went to a place he knew he was going to perish in order to be there. The second thing, we are compelled to sacrifice because of Jesus' claims and accomplishments. We want people to know what Jesus claimed, what he accomplished, so they can wrestle with that. So Jesus, in responding to Herod, says, he says to them, You go tell that fox! Behold, I cast out demons and cures today, tomorrow, and on the third day I'm going to be perfected. It's interesting, this is one of the few times Jesus makes a comment about a political leader. So again, this is like Jesus talking about your mayor or your governor, saying, you tell that fox. You tell him. I'm not scared of him. I cast out demons. You think I'm worried about Herod? I cure diseases. And by the way, I'm going to make a future prediction. One day, if I do get killed, and I will, I'll be perfected in three days. Predictions about his own death and resurrection. Now, this phrase fox is interesting. You can find the word fox used in the Jewish Talmud as well as some Babylonian literature. The idea being that it would say, hey, if you come to a town and you want to know something about the scriptures, go find a scholar who's a lion. And there's a lion, somebody who's an expert in their field. Go talk to the lion. Don't go consult a fox. A fox was like a a step down. It was a wannabe. A 'er ne'er-do-well. I wish I could be it, but I'm really... Somebody who's trying, trying too hard... So Jesus is saying, hey, you tell that wannabe, you tell that ne'er-do-well that I am not worried about his threats. I'm going to raise myself from the dead one day, and I have accomplished incredible things. You tell him who I am, and I'm not worried about that. In fact, in the Talmud, I think, it might be the Babylonian literature, it'll say, hey, you are, the son, you are a lion, the son of a lion. 
It means your dad was a scholar or very prominent, and you're prominent as well. But you could also be a lion, the son of a fox. And your parents didn't really weren't really great in business or great in finances or weren't really known for their spiritual life, but you overcame their foxness and became a lion. So Jesus here in this phrase is saying, listen, you're talking to the lion of Judah, fox. I am not particularly concerned about what you're saying or what you're threatening with me. Because Jesus makes these outlandish acts that are either true or not, right? We believe they're true. Because history records it. And the Bible uh, tells us about it. That he cast out demons. He had power over spiritual forces. He had power over physical forces. And he predicted his own death and he would be resurrected. One of the reasons we sacrifice is because we want people to know Jesus' claims and his accomplishments. I mean, why this year, for example, we're going to do nine Christmas Eve services. Last couple of years, we've done eight. At the end of eight, we're like, this is all we can do. We're going to nine this year. Why would we do that? Why not just say, sorry, it's not enough room? Because we want people who are uniquely open to the gospel on Christmas and Easter to have an opportunity to hear about it. So this year, as you've seen your program, you'll notice that Christmas Eve happens on a Monday. So we're going to put three services on Sunday at 9, 10, and 11, a little different than our normal times, 9, 10, 11. Then we're going to have an additional six services on Christmas Eve. Why would we sacrifice our time and energy and our Christmas Eve and our Christmas Eve Eve? But we want you and your friends to be able to have a seat. Why not say as a church, hey, we've got four services. Let's just be happy. Most churches in America are 80 people. Why would we try and buy video equipment to add additional services? Why, why is this room full enough that we want to double or triple the equipping services with the video equipment and what's going to allow us to do in the future? Why would we do that? Why not just be happy? Have some contentment in crying out loud. Because we are so compelled by a vision, not to coast, but to say more people need to know about the scriptures, more people need to wrestle with this Jesus and what he's accomplished and what he predicted. We want to make Jesus known. Thirdly, we sacrifice because of Jesus' example of dying to self. I must journey today, even though I know I'm going to perish. Jesus dies to self all the time. Not my will, but yours be done. What's going to motivate you in marriage to choose to adapt yet again to your spouse and their idiosyncrasies? Adapt again to your spouse and their requests. It's not because they've done the same thing as you. That never works. It's when you realize how much God adapted to you and died to himself for you that you're once again motivated to say, I'm going to die to self again. What's going to motivate you to swallow your pride, to apologize, to give up your right to be right in order to restore a relationship? It's the right thing to do. That'll last about a week. But it won't warm your heart. When you see that he died to self, he gave up his right to be right, he gave up his right to justice, what's going to help you forgive your enemy except you see that you were God's enemy and he chose to give up his right to judge you and took the judgment upon himself? Learning to die to self, to sacrifice justice, to sacrifice your rights, to sacrifice your comfort, to sacrifice even your life in those two stories I told you, what would motivate that? We sacrifice because we realize how much he sacrificed for us, died to us, what he accomplished for us. And that becomes the motivation for being the person you want to be.
for giving up the things you're holding so dearly that are keeping you from becoming more selfless. First compelling truth. We're compelled to sacrifice because he sacrificed for us. The second one is that we are compelled to warn rejectors because we were once rejectors. You see, Jesus is going to choose to go to Jerusalem. And because he chose to go to Jerusalem, because he chooses to go to his Jerusalem, you and I get to go to the new Jerusalem. Revelation has a picture of the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. It's a picture of God dwelling with mankind. And the reason we get to experience God on earth, Emmanuel, the ultimate Emmanuel, is because he went to his Jerusalem to get rejected so we could go to the new Jerusalem and be accepted. That's the gospel. But it wasn't because we were good enough. It's not because we were smart enough to accept it. We were actually rejectors. We're rejectors. And we are compelled to warn rejectors, people who don't believe the way we do, people who don't think Jesus is who he says he was, people think the Bible is sort of a group of myths. We're, we're compelled to warn rejectors because we were once rejected. More than that, we were once rejectors of God. And because when we were rejectors and betrayers, he loved us, he pursued us, he came after us, we're compelled to tell other people about this message. And Jesus does exactly that. Here's what he says. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Here's your history, Jerusalem. You kill the prophets and you stone those God sends to you. There's a tagline for your city. Welcome to Jerusalem. We kill the prophets God sends. Look at Jesus' tender heart. How often, oh, Jerusalem, how often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you are not willing. Do you not see your house is left to desolation? I'm the, the last great prophet sent to you. And if you don't accept me, there's, there's pain in the future. Your house is going to be desolate. And I'm trying to protect you from that. And you're not going to see me again until the day you cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is laser-focused on getting to a place that's going to reject him and ultimately kill him. Why would he do that? Except that he wants to warn the rejectors, those who are rejecting him, because that's what the gospel's about. And we, as those who rejected Jesus, want to warn other fellow rejectors because we want them to experience abundant life and forgiveness and covering of shame. I was talking to a friend of mine this week. He attends Horizon at our exploring service. He's not a follower of Jesus, but a good friend of mine. He posted on Facebook that he went down to Tennessee, the Lake Norris, to go fishing. And on the way, he stopped at a restaurant. He's at the restaurant, and a guy came up behind him, tap, tap, tap. Uh, yes? Are you saved, brother? No. Can I tell you about that? Please don't. Well, let me sit down. Now, you're going to hell right now, and I don't want you to go to hell, and I want you to know Jesus, and why would you not know Jesus? And he finished his spiel, and it was not particularly effective, and my friend who posted this on Facebook said, I turned to him and I said, well, the reason I don't believe in Jesus and God in the Bible is because I don't believe in talking snakes, I'm an engineer, I believe in facts, things you can touch, I don't believe in supernatural things, I don't believe in talking donkeys, and until I can see some evidence for something that's legitimately true and not fantasy and superstition, I think I'm fine, thank you very much. Poor kid. I called him up. I said, hey, I loved your Facebook post. I said, apparently uh, you had a little religious encounter when you are in Tennessee. He's like, oh, I know. His intentions were good. He said, but it just was not very relational and it was not particularly respectful. 
Now, I don't doubt his, his intentions at all, but it is difficult. And then my friend said, Bob, we need to go to lunch and have another conversation. Every time we're go to lunch, we talk about spiritual matters. So he's interested in talking about spiritual matters, but in the context of relationship. So learning how to warn, how to dialogue with people who are friends who reject and cooperate with the Holy Spirit is what we're trying to do. And there's some methodology built in here that Jesus has I think is helpful in how he did it. Number one, Jesus moves from the secular to the sacred. You may not notice it, but Jesus has embedded in here a quote from a very famous Greek play. Jesus used a Greek play to transition into spiritual matters here. Uh, if you grow, grew up around the Sea of Galilee, Jesus primarily lived in Capernaum or ministered in Capernaum. That was his ministry center. But right across the lake was the Decapolis. This was a ten-city, gigantic Greek-Roman empire. And just to show you how close they were to each other, here's what a view across the Sea of Galilee looks like. It's like, that's the Sea of Galilee? That's like a mini lake. So Jesus could see the Decapolis area from where he was at. This is like a miniature worldview. And so the Greek-Roman world was very much on top of Jesus. So much so that Jesus' father was a carpenter, a tecton is what the word is, which is a builder of wood and stone. Almost everything in that area is built out of stone, not wood. So as a builder, he built a lot of things out of stone. The primary hire that day was Herod, who built these massive construction projects. And so it's very possible that Jesus and his father were working on theaters like you find in the Decapolis. I get a chance to visit this theater. Beautiful, beautiful Greek theater right there across the sea from Jesus. Very possible that Jesus and his father worked on this very um, theater. And they may have heard some of the rehearsals of the Greek play. You can look it up, Google it, The Trojan Women. And so they may have heard these lines. If not, this was a very famous play. Just like Jesus quoted the Aesop's fables six weeks ago when Drew talked. Now he's quoting from this play, The Trojan Women. So we got to visit here and see where those plays would have performed there in the Decapolis. Let me show you the clip or the quote from the um, Greek play. Like some mother bird that o'er her fledging screams will begin the strain. How different from the song I sang to the gods in days long past. My city is ablaze with flame. So it's about a city that's about to be destroyed. And a mother bird that wants to protect her fledgings. Yet thou aged foot make one painful struggle to hasten, that I may say a farewell to this wretched town. O Troy, that erst such a grand career amongst barbarian towns, soon wilt thou be reft of the splendid name. O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, how I long like a mother bird to gather her young fledglings, to protect them from the danger to come, for your whole house and city will be desolate. Now, in the Jewish literature, when you want to emphasize emotion, you would repeat something twice. O Troy, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem. If you think in the Old Testament, when Absalom is killed and David finds out about it, what does he say? Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. Oh, that I would have died in your place. Deep expression of emotion. And Jesus is saying, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So here again is Jesus using even references to his culture to help people understand truths. But lots of, it's also very real, but Jesus almost like, we quote movies, Jesus is quoting here. And Jesus, then, the followers of Christ who picked up the church, they began to emphasize ways in which we use different types of music. So, for example, in Colossians, Jesus says, God says, I want you to use psalms, because the Jewish people becoming believers in Jesus, their songbook was the book of psalms. So they would sing psalms, Jewish songs, in their worship gathering. They would also sing hymns. 
Now, hymns were Christians, sometimes Gentiles, sometimes not, writings about the gospel. We've got a couple embedded in the scripture. There's one in 2 Timothy. Uh, he cannot, uh, if we deny him, he cannot deny himself. It's a little piece of a hymn. So they would sing hymns, which were the Christian audience. But they also reference when you gathered together to use spiritual songs. These were the songs that came out of those who came from a Greek-Roman tradition. You weren't singing about Zeus, but you would take the type of music that they listened to and use that to bridge the gap. That's one of the reasons we do that and are compelled to have our two-service design as a church. It comes out of these techniques that Jesus used. A couple of things we're compelled to do. We're compelled to gather together. The reason we come together to study the Bible verse by verse is because we want to gather ourselves together to be equipped to have conversations with people, to answer their tough questions, to give evidence and reasons for the hope we have within us. We gather together weekly to study the Bible. We gather together daily to hear from God, to pray, to understand our own faith because we want to be equipped. We know we have a rejecting heart. We want to learn how to make that heart more accepting to God. Why else are we compelled? Well, we are compelled to live with a sense of urgency. Look at all the time words embedded in this passage. I will not, you will not see me again. If you miss this opportunity, if you don't, if you don't take this moment to, to be on track with God, if you reject him once again like you did before with all the prophets, oh no, guys, until, you're not going to see me again until the time when you say, blessed is he who comes. Guys, this is a window of opportunity. And after this window of opportunity, your house is going to be desolate. And 30 years after Jesus predicts this, so it's about 33 A.D., the Bible's written somewhere between 40 to 50 A.D., 70 A.D., exactly what Jesus predicts here will happen. And this would be laughable prediction. It would be like me coming and saying, Hey, America, you've seen the White House. You've seen the, 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 the hall where our Congress meets. You've seen the Washington Monument. 30 years from now, it's all going to be desolated. You're not even going to know it ever existed. Right, right. That's how laughable this prediction is that he makes. But Jesus says, we've got to live with a sense of urgency. You've got to receive God. You've got to look into God. You've got to get serious. You've got to get on track with God. Stop coasting. Stop being complacent. Start being compelled by what does it look like to live a life with God. And here's what happens. 30 years after Jesus says, you're not going to see me again until you receive me at the second coming, the Romans come in. This is exactly what happens. Let me show you a quick video to show just how serious the desolation was. Let's watch. The historian Josephus actually witnessed the siege and aftermath and said, Now as soon as the army had no more people to slay or to plunder because there remained none to be the objects of their fury, Titus Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple. Other than a few towers and forts for the Roman garrison, everything was destroyed. It was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was left nothing to make those that came thither believe Jerusalem had ever been inhabited. The Wars of the Jews, or History of the Destruction of Jerusalem, Book 7, Chapter 1. Then about 60 years later, the Roman Emperor Hadrian commenced with finishing the job of the complete Romanization of Jerusalem and much of the land of Israel. By 135 A.D., nearly 600,000 Judeans were killed, and over 1,000 towns and villages were razed to the ground. The practice of the Mosaic Law was prohibited, the sacred scrolls were burned, and circumcision was outlawed. After Hadrian, all that remained on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem were a few Roman statues. 
So it has been rebuilt even today. If you go to Jerusalem, you'll see that some of those pieces have been put back together. Here, for example, these gigantic blocks or Legos are over six foot tall, over six foot deep, and sometimes 30 to 50 foot long. That's how long just one block is. And the Romans came in and devastated it. This is what it looked like in its day. This is put to scale with the people on the, on the walkway. And look what it looks like now. And that's after they've rebuilt pieces of it. But at the time, it looked like it had never been inhabited, Josephus tells us. And these rocks were just decimated by the Romans. And this is what Jesus is predicting. You've got to live with a sense of urgency. Stop coasting in your spiritual life. Stop putting off getting closer to God and developing your prayer life. Bring a sense of urgency. And the urgency is not America's going to get killed in 30 years. The urgency is Christ could return at any time. And you want to be ready. You want him to say, oh, Father, you're here. Let me tell you how I stewarded my life. Let me tell you the kind of person I've become. Let me tell you how I've been conformed in the image of Jesus the way you wanted me to. Let me show you how that affected my heart. Let me show you how it affected my pocketbook. Let me show you how it affected my calendar. Let me show you how it affected the words that came out of my mouth and the thoughts I had that I took captive. I live with a sense of urgency to get close and deep with Jesus because he could return at any hour. I'm compelled by wanting to know the God who wants to know me that I want to please the God who made me pleasing to him. And again, look at the size of these people here, just to get a size for just how tall each of those rocks and each of those boulders. Urgency. Am I, are you compelled to sacrifice because he sacrificed? To warn rejectors because you once rejected him? I had a great conversation last week. I did an interview a few weeks ago, and so I was prepping with somebody from our church we're sitting back in the atrium, and I said, well, tell me about your spiritual journey. And she said, well, I'm a wannabe believer. I thought that was a great explanation. She said, but I just, I've been searching for 30 years. I love coming here. I love what I'm learning. I'm not going to come to the, to the 850 service, the equipping service. My husband comes to that and loves it. And he's gotten serious about the Bible. I'm seeing changes in his life. That's been exciting. I can see it's good for him. I just can't buy it. I said, well, great. Well, tell me about your journey. She says, well, first of all, she says, do you really believe in like Adam and Eve in a garden? I'm thinking, how do I answer that? And I tried to look to the issue underneath the issue. This is helpful, actually, when you're talking to people who are unconvinced. The issue is Adam and Eve, but the real issue is only idiots believe in that, and I don't want to be an idiot, right? So sometimes it's helpful when you're dialoguing with somebody to be compelled to say, how do I answer the issue beneath the issue, which is what I did felt the Holy Spirit saying, ask her this question. I said, do you remember who uh, President Obama's science secretary was? She says, what? No. I said, well, you have to admit, that guy would probably be smart, right? In fact, he wrote a book called The Language of God. He's the same guy who untangled the, the double helix in our genetic code. Well, that's a smart dude. He's a Bible-believing Christian. I said, he wrote a book called The Language of God. You know what he found? He found that when they untangled all of human DNA they discovered that all of us are related to the same person. They actually concluded historically and scientifically there's no such thing as races. Just one, the human race. We've got different cultures, we've got different skin pigments, but there's only one race, the human race. Huh. And do you know what he said and his team who studied the double helix found? They said if you trace back all of our genetic codes, it looks like we came from common ancestors, what they call a DNA Adam and DNA Eve. I did not know that. I said, now, I happen to believe they were real people who God made instantly. 
I happen to believe that they were placed in the garden. But even if you don't believe that, science leads you to say there are facts from science that somebody who's way smarter than you and I have come to that conclusion. Hmm. And so learning how to be compelled to say, how do I have conversations, learn how to get better at this, to dialogue with people. And then we talk for another hour about all kinds of just great questions and great dialogues and disagreements and what about that? And it just even more, having a conversation, more and more, I'm even more compelled to say, God, we have got to have all of us in those kind of conversations to see new people coming to know Jesus all the time. It's one of the reasons this last seven or eight weeks we've been talking about putting in video equipment so we can have online services and on-demand to send to our friends and, and create more space in our 850 service and 10 o'clock service. Why? Why raise the money? Why not just be happy? Because we want more and more people to have space. That's why we're doing nine services. So that they can come to wrestle with the claims of Jesus. So two questions, two takeaways. Number one, are you compelled to sacrifice? Because if you do, it will rescue you from self-centeredness. The natural bent of the human condition is to go into the ditch of self-centeredness. When you learn to sacrifice for your friends, when you learn to sacrifice by honoring your parents when you, they've been very rude, when you learn to adapt to your spouse and die to self, you become more like the character of Jesus he's making you into. You're like Roman says, he's conforming you into the image of Jesus. The reason you and I need to wrestle with and practice self-sacrifice is because it's in sacrifice of our time, our money, our will, our efforts, our talents, that we become more like heaven. When's the last time you really sacrificed at something you'd call sacrifice? Two, am I compelled to warn rejectors? And am I, am, I, am I effective at it? I know a lot of people who are compelled, but they're not real effective. Are you willing to learn how to be more effective, how to use your voice and learn how to listen really, really well and how to share concern and love like Jesus did? Like, I'm like a mom who's just trying to gather you in where your heart comes out as you're talking, not just facts. And here's what will happen. If you begin to let God do that in your life, it's going to rescue you from self-righteousness. Especially you just came back from Thanksgiving where you're with relatives that don't agree the way you did and you're like, that's what's wrong with the country, right? Just like Uncle, we got a bunch of liberals just like Uncle so-and-so. Oh my goodness. Oh, we got these Trump supporters. That's what's going wrong with the country. Oh, look at those pagans. You know, whatever it is. It's a self-righteousness. If everybody was like me, the world would be great. That's self-righteousness. The gospel says, no, no, no. Jesus died for people like me. I'm a rejecter. When you see somebody you think is stubborn about God or stubborn about the truth and rejects it, you can say, look at those kind of people. That's the problem in life. And you'll become self-righteous. Or you can say, that's exactly what I was like to God. Belligerent, self-centered, blind to the truth, not listening to any facts besides my own. He went to Jerusalem to die for me when I rejected him, when I was stubborn, when I was narrow-minded, and when I didn't care. And that will begin to not fix every political difference you have with your family, but to extract the self-righteousness from it and start to say, I love my family because God loved me and wanted to make me family. Not look at those rejectors, but I was a rejector. Oh, but for the grace of God go I. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this compelling message about Jesus and his desire to love us, to pursue us, to chase us, to grow us. Make us into the image of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen.
As you head out today, please grab some tickets. Again, those tickets are available in the rear atrium for our Christmas Eve service. Nine services, they're all complimentary, but we appreciate you being here.